The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Welcome back to another edition of the State House Takeout, and we've got Chris Lasinski, Colin Young, Katie Lannon, and Matt Murphy here. Hi, folks. Hey. Happy Friday, Sam. Hey, Sam. Happy Friday. We've been uh, looking back, Colin, to 2013, to those initial Gaming Commission hearings over the Boston Area Casino License, and what the applicant had to say about who they should pick to run the Boston Area Casino. And what we... What we ask is that you accept our history for what it is, a story of best efforts, not perfect. But I tell you that if you pick us to be in business in Massachusetts, we will do what we have done before, try our best. And we're here because it looks like fun. We do this because it's fun. We want to have fun building buildings, making people go wow. And if I could... If I could dare to give some advice to the commission, I would say you should pick someone that looks like fun to you. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Steve Wynn, the voice of Steve Wynn back in 2013 when he was at the helm of Wynn Resorts. And Colin, you're just back from a tour of duty this week down at the convention center where Massachusetts gaming regulators are looking at whether his former company is still up to the task of running this Boston area casino. Uh, Were the last three days fun? Well, Sam, I had some fun. It was a good time to be a reporter, uh, but I don't think anyone who uh, was part of those hearings would describe them as fun. It was uh, three long days at the BCEC with... Um, detailed questioning and uh, some uncomfortable testimony going over uh, some sensitive issues in the past uh, at a company where, as executives described, there was a culture of paranoia and of fear uh, where executives and board members were almost constantly consumed in uh, rancorous and bitter litigation. So, no, I don't think anyone particularly had fun uh, during these hearings. And what sorts of people were they bringing in, and and how were the commissioners questioning them? Yeah, so as the commission is considering whether Wynn Resorts is still suitable to hold the the lone Boston area casino license, uh, they wanted to hear from the current executives at the company and the current board members. So the Gaming Commission hauled in the CEO, the chief financial officer, the general counsel, uh, a slew of of other executives, and uh, just about every member of the company's board. Uh, Part of the reason for that is that the Gaming Commission has to go through uh, and determine whether each of these uh, people who's been added to the board since Steve Wynn resigned about a year ago, whether they're individually suitable to be part of a casino operator in Massachusetts, and then whether the company as a whole, uh, in light of these significant and repetitive corporate failures the Gaming Commission's investigation found, uh, and the changes they've made in the last year, uh, in light of all those factors, whether Wynn Resort should still uh, hold that 
casino license. So you heard some of the stuff that you already knew going into those hearings. Uh, what did you hear that surprised you or might have caught you off guard that might also be sticking with the commission members as they mull over this decision? Yes, yeah, and a lot of what we heard and a lot of what was in the commission's report mirrored what was in a, a similar report done by gaming regulators in Nevada. This is where we heard about the, the allegations against Steve Wynn, the fact that former Wynn Resorts executives knew about these allegations uh, and yet didn't report them to Massachusetts regulators and in some cases didn't report them uh, the appro- through the appropriate channels at the company. Uh, but what I think the commissioners will have on their minds as they're now uh, determining the fate of Wynn Resorts' suitability here. Uh, first will be the testimony of Matt Maddox. He's the new CEO of Wynn Resorts. And they really grilled him at those hearings. Yeah, he um, he took a couple of punches uh, during the hearing. And um, uh, among other things, he detailed uh, when and how he um, came into knowledge of settlements or allegations against Steve Wynn. And a pattern emerged where uh, even though he was president of the company at the time, uh, other executives knew more about these things than he did and apparently felt they didn't have to report these up the chain to Maddox. Uh, Maddox repeatedly said that a, a lot of the information in the commission's report, in the Nevada report as well, uh was not known to him until investigators brought it to his attention. So we were also hearing about some of the complaints that came out of the Boston Harbor operation. Yeah, and I think those are interesting uh, to consider because um, basically the Gaming Commission determined that Wynn Resorts and Encore Boston Harbor handled these two complaints in Everett appropriately. So they'll be looking at those complaints and how they were handled uh, and comparing them to how Wynn Resorts handled um, situations that involved the founder and CEO and chairman Steve Wynn. So I'll give you a little bit of the background on those uh, two Everett complaints. Uh, They were both filed against the same executive at Encore Boston Harbor, uh, but by two different employees. The first one came in January of 2017. The second was in July of 2017. Those dates are important because uh, that means both happened before Steve Wynn left the company uh, before the Wall Street Journal article that that laid out uh, all the allegations against Steve Wynn came out. The first uh, complaint was that an employee reported that this executive massaged her shoulders while she was making plane reservations for him. Uh, An outside attorney who looked at this for the Gaming Commission said it was a classic he said, she said. There were no other complaints filed against this executive, um, but they took it seriously and uh, the general counsel at Encore Boston Harbor, Jackie Crum, counseled the executive uh, after that first complaint. Then after the second complaint in July of 2017, that was when a uh, different female employee and this executive went to get coffee at Starbucks. When the female employee tried to pay, uh, she says that the executive um, reached from behind her and covered her mouth with his hand and then stuck his own credit card out to pay. Um, after, the, after both complaints, investigations were launched by Jackie Crum and others at Encore Boston Harbor. Uh, and after that second complaint, when investigators went to talk or when uh, officials went to talk to this executive, uh, they said that he demonstrated what he had done in the Starbucks by doing the same thing to the one female who was in the room uh, when they were asking him about it. Uh, and uh, Encore Officials determined that this executive had, quote, no concept of appropriate behavior, Hmm. uh, and he was fired. And in fact, uh, 
this outside attorney wrote in her report that when they called him to say they were going to have to have a conversation about his termination, he responded by saying he would be ready as soon as he put his pants on. Huh. All right. So from the manner of the questioning by Gaming Commission members, uh, did you get any insight into which way they might be leaning or what they might be prioritizing? I think um, what they're really looking at is uh, has Wynn Resorts made a true change? Uh They've updated their board of directors. They say they've bolstered their policies. Uh, But I think they're really trying to dig into has the culture at the company changed? Do employees there feel safe? uh, And do employees feel that they can report uh, instances of workplace harassment up the chain? So they start their deliberations today. Friday Friday is when we're taping. And uh, there are more than 5,000 jobs at stake, uh, according to the count from, from Wynn. What are the options here? So the options are they can deem them suitable, they can deem them not suitable, or they could deem them suitable with some kind of a condition. And there's really broad authority for the Gaming Commission to decide what those conditions might be. All right. Thanks, Colin. And uh, well done down at the convention center this week. A magnificent volume of uh, in-depth reporting from down there that you can check out at statehousenews.com. Chris Lisinski You've been covering affordable housing for us this week, and uh, a new report out this week found that while Massachusetts is still ahead of the national average on providing low-income housing, uh, there's still less than half of the needed affordable housing available uh, in the Bay State. Uh, What else did we learn uh, on the status of, of affordable housing in Mass.? Sure, Sam. Yeah, you, you paint the uh, the overall picture exactly right. A new report this week from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston shows that uh, there's fewer than one unit of affordable and available housing for every two families in the lowest income bracket across the state. And uh, that's something that we heard recent weeks as well from the National Low Income Housing Coalition. But what this newest report from the Fed particularly showed is that the situation appears to be getting a little bit worse. So uh, from 20- 2011 to 2016, we lost about two to three units of affordable housing per 100 families. Um, the ratio is now, you know, less than one for every two. And what this report warned was that uh, significant state investment needs to be made in the coming years to stave off even further drops and declines in the available stock uh, for the, the lowest income residents. So what groups are especially affected? Sure. So uh, uh, Point of terminology, um, this report looked at extremely low-income households. Um, That definition is a little flexible based on where you're at in the state, but it uh, includes all people whose uh, total household income is 30% or less what the area median income is. It ranges somewhere between $20,000 a year and $30,000 a year for a family of four. Um, uh, What this uh, report from the Fed found is that these families, uh, these households that are particularly affected by the last in affordable housing tend to be older. They tend to be individuals. Um, a lot of these people are 60 and older living on their own and uh, face a, a really dire market trying to find places to live that are within their budgets. Now, another issue is time limits on the affordability agreements for some of these units. Exactly. And that's where a lot of the warnings about the the next few years come into play. Um, There are existing subsidies on a lot of these affordable units that keep them within reach for the lowest income households. Uh, The report warned that quite a lot of those are set to expire. About 50,000 affordable housing units will have all of their subsidies expire by 2050 if state lawmakers don't take actions 
used to renew those subsidies. So the shortage of anywhere between 140,000 units and 170,000 units that we see right now could continue to grow in the next decades unless uh, people start to invest. So what's the state doing about it? The Baker administration has a housing bill, right? And we heard some about that at the Housing Committee's introductory hearing on Tuesday. That came up. Uh, But you were trying to figure out what the timeline might be for uh, legislative action on that bill. And the answer is very vague. Uh, (laughs) Lawmakers will only say that it will come up soon. Uh, Even when I pressed and asked if that means in a matter of weeks or a matter of months, the answer was still soon. Soon, uh, Governor Baker, obviously, his administration hopes to see that housing production bill, which would lower the threshold required for zoning changes, uh, come up sooner rather than later, perhaps in time to let fall town meetings or next year's spring town meetings uh, abide by the new rules. But the final answer is still unclear. Sure. Thanks, Chris. So there have been proposals before to ban single-use plastic bags statewide. Uh, But sometimes over the years, those bills have felt like, well, like a plastic bag floating in the wind. Is is that the Katy Perry song, Katy? I I think you might uh, be a little bit more up on your years old Katy Perry song lyrics than I am there, Sam. <laughs> but but point taken, um, there are, you know, supporters of the, the bag ban effort this year who say they think the time has come and the, this might be the year we see a statewide ban um, go into place. You know, they're pointing to the, the number of co-sponsors on uh, Senator Jamie Eldridge and Rep. Laurie Ehrlich's bills, which had a hearing this week before the Environment Committee with I believe 98 lawmakers on board this year. They're saying that's more than three times as many as in last session. And of course, we've seen dozens of communities take action at the local level. I live in Somerville. I've long since had to adjust to bringing my reusable bags with me to the grocery store. Lexington just did theirs, I think, at this this Springstown meeting. Yeah, and it was interesting. The the day of the hearing, um, Senator Eldridge testified that there were 95 communities that had them in place. And that night, his hometown of Acton became the 96th at its town meeting. Timely. And that covers those 96 communities represent over 40% of the state's population, um, according to the the sponsors of the bill. And that kind of got me thinking about what what is critical mass here? We've seen this happen Mm. a few times where the state takes action after so many municipalities have already put the same or similar policies in place. a recent example of that was raising the tobacco age to 21. Um, by the time the legislature did that last year, there were 170 of the state's 351 cities and towns that had raised their age, um, representing almost 70% of the state population. So bag bans aren't at that level yet, but um, the Mass Green Network is predicting it'll hit 150 municipalities by the end of the year. Wow. Wow. And that's an interesting way. You know, you could look at it from a couple of directions, either letting the municipalities lead or the state following behind, you know? Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. The, the, the momentum is building, according to the people behind this. Yeah. So what might be a sticking point this session, in particular with this Ehrlich Eldridge bill? Yeah, one of the the big points there, and I heard a lot of testimony about this at the hearing, is the the ten cent fee that stores would need to charge for recycled paper bags, or they could sell reusable bags, um, reusable non paper bags, to customers for at least ten cents. And now the Senate has passed 
bag bans kind of folded into bigger legislation a couple times now, each of the past two sessions, but neither of those included a fee. And Jamie Eldridge says that the fee is an important piece of the bill. That's why it's in their legislation. They need it to create the disincentive to get people to stop using these bags. But, you know, and we heard from a a trade group representing paper manufacturers, our paper bag manufacturers, the American Forest and Paper Association that said of the 96 local bag bans, there are only four that have the fee on paper. They think it should be up to the individual retailer. Hmm. Um, What do the retailers say? Yeah, they have kind of an interesting perspective on this. Um, RAM, the Retailers Association Association of Massachusetts, in their testimony pointed out that paper bags do cost more. So many of their members, they said, appreciate uh, the idea of a fee that the, the store would retain to support those increased costs. But they're wary to charge their customers a, of something that they're getting for free right now and then, you know, have a new law and have it cost more add to the expense of shopping there. Now, we often hear from the retailers about expenses that they incur that their online counterparts or maybe just over the border in New Hampshire that they don't have to worry about that. And they say that bag fee would be another added expense to shopping at brick and mortar stores here in Massachusetts. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, something to watch. Yeah, indeed. All right. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Sam. And Matt Murphy. Governor Charlie Baker has found himself in an interesting position this year, sometimes at odds on the issues with his own party chairman, former Rep. Jim Lyons. So Baker got pulled into the debate uh, this week over the uh, Roe Act uh, dealing with late-term abortions. And this is a debate that Chairman Lyons has been outspoken on uh, since his days up here on Beacon Hill. How's the governor navigating this? Yeah, we were certainly wondering how long it would take before Charlie Baker and Jim Lyons ended up butting heads over some sort of policy issue. And We kind of got our answer this week with uh, this legislation that's been filed by Speaker Pro Tem Pat Haddad uh, in the House and Senate President Emerita Emerita, Harriet Chandler in the Senate uh, called the Roe Act. And this is something that Jim Lyons uh, very quickly in his new tenure as uh, chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party has latched onto. It is a bill that would update the state's uh, abortion laws including a new provision that would allow abortions in certain cases where there are fatal fetal abnormalities after 24 weeks. Jim Lyons has branded this bill the infanticide bill. He's put out press releases, statements. They've launched ad campaigns against some of the, we should say, 114 sponsors now in the House and Senate, so wow. broad support. But Governor Charlie Baker obviously asked about this Uh, because he is well known to be a pro-choice Republican, whereas Jim Lyons has always been, even when he was in the legislature, uh, staunchly pro-life. So more than 100 co-sponsors, including uh, members of leadership in both branches. Is this something that the Democrats really want to pass this year? Yeah, exactly. Well, so, you know, interestingly, the governor got asked about this just moments after he held a ceremonial bill signing ceremony for legislation that made state funding available to family planning clinics that are at risk of losing federal funds under the Trump administration. And uh, with that sort of done in the rearview mirror, the question became how he uh, feels about the Roe Act. And and the governor basically said he does not support late-term abortions, as he called them. And, uh, you know, he reiterated his 
support for current Massachusetts law. He's uh, in favor of choice, but as he says, uh, late-term abortions are not something he's interested in entertaining. Uh, The speaker, who was standing with the governor at the time he was getting these questions, also took a sort of lukewarm... Non-committal. Non-committal, I guess, is a better way to say it. I mean, he basically said that this bill would go through the typical process, it would get a hearing, and that uh, we would see... Uh, in the future, whether or not this is something he wants to take up. But certainly a lot of support in both the House and Senate. And I know you were there when we talked right after to uh, Speaker Pro Tem Haddad about her bill. Uh, and she thinks that uh, this is something she can work the governor on. She thinks she can talk to him, uh, try to convince him that this is uh, not exactly the pro-abortion bill that he might think it is. All right. Thanks, Matt. And, and thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.